Acts 23, verses 12 to 35. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and to the, and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So they took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because, something, because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learnt that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their, San, to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man. I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carried, carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they led the cavalry, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor led, read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he asked, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Christianity is always on trial. Followers of Jesus will always be questioned and accused and challenged over their faith. In recent years, Christians in the West have even gone to court over their faith. 
Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cakes in Colorado, has been fined for declining to provide a gender transition celebration cake. Joshua, a student at an Australian university, was suspended from uni for praying for another student. And if a new law in Victoria is passed, Christians in that state will face charges for praying with people over issues of gender. Christianity is always on trial. But you don't need to be in a courtroom to be on trial. Trials can happen in the classroom, the common room and the living room. In these environments, Christians are called upon to answer accusations, defend their faith and stand up for Jesus. And sometimes it's just questions from a family member, just simple questions, stuff like, why are you missing church, uh, why are you missing this family event because of church or because of some ministry event or mission? Or among colleagues or fellow students, why aren't you wearing purple on Wear It Purple Day? Or why aren't you drinking with everyone else tonight? They're just questions, but they're not just questions, are they? They're potential accusations behind them, such as, well, I don't think you value family, or I think you might be a bigot, or I think you're looking down on us. These questions can have accusations behind them. But of course, these uh, things like this can be more than just questions. At our church, a uh, uni student has had to deal with serious academic consequences for uh, excusing herself from leading a support group for teenagers transitioning gender. One of our youth was challenged in the, school, in the schoolyard with the words, you're a Christian, you hate gays, don't you? Another person in our church has had to deal with accusations that the Bible promotes domestic violence. Now, none of these were in a courtroom, but all of them are about Christianity being on trial before the world. So, I wonder, have you found yourself in similar situations? Have you found yourself, in some sense, on trial in the world? Now, these experiences test our faith, but they also provide opportunities to proclaim the gospel and hold out the name of Jesus in our world. And indeed, they can be the means by which other people do come to believe. So it's important that we are equipped and ready for these moments and make the most of them when they come. But in Acts 24 then, Christianity is on trial and Paul is in the dock. And what we'll see in this section in Acts will remind us of the gospel and will equip us and prepare us for the moments we face in our lives now. So if you're joining us today, we're in the book of Acts, and our Acts is part two of the Luke-Acts series. We've got the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, and are written to a man called Theophilus, and they've been written to give him confidence and in what he's believed, and same for us as readers as well. So Luke chapter one says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. There we have the purpose of Luke Acts. So every time we read Luke or Acts, we should expect to find order and history, and we should expect to grow more certain about what we believe about Jesus. And in the story, we are now in the summer of AD 57, about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and at this point, the Apostle Paul had travelled from Asia Minor 
to Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and he'd come to bring financial support for the Jewish Christians struggling with poverty. But because of his ministry across Asia Minor and Greece, this was a risky mission. And in chapter 21, uh, we saw last week, he was recognised in the temple by some of his Jewish opponents from Asia Minor, who were visiting also for the festival. They stirred up the crowd against him, Paul was beaten up and was on the point of death, but just in time, the Roman commander in charge of the occupying garrison intervened and saved his life. Paul spoke to the crowd and then to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, but was then dragged back to the Roman barracks in the town for his own safety. And the passage ends with Jesus appearing miraculously to Paul by night in a vision. Uh, 23 verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So here we see Jesus is still in charge. He has a plan for Paul to testify about Jesus all the way to Rome, the capital of the empire. And that brings us to our passage today. Now, 23 verse 12 through to the end of chapter 23 explains how Paul moved from the garrison in Jerusalem to Antipatris overnight and then to Caesarea, the Roman administrative capital of the province of Judah. It's about 100 kilometres north of Jerusalem. And it's a brilliant drama in this little section. There's the assassination plot, there's the leak of the plan, an escape by night, 40 assassins. Sounds like the kind of Chinese movie I like to watch on my days off. Lots of great drama. And there's three points to make just from this little section. Firstly, this is making us wonder, can human opposition frustrate the plans of Jesus? Will Paul really testify in Rome, like Jesus has said? Or will he die at the hands of Jewish assassins? And of course, what we see is Jesus in charge, making sure his purposes are fulfilled through human courage and wisdom and even political convenience. Jesus is still in charge. Secondly, this little passage is giving us historical confidence about the truth of early church history. Just like Luke said to Theophilus, certainty about the things you've been taught. We have the date, the location, the mention of Paul's nephew, the name of the commander, Claudius Lysias, the number of soldiers, horsemen and spearmen, even the letter Claudius wrote to Felix. We are reading true history here and that gives us confidence in the Bible and in our faith. And thirdly, this little section is showing us that Paul wasn't sent to the governor because he was a really bad criminal. I mean, you could wonder that, couldn't you? Why else would a man be sent to Caesarea, the capital? But this is showing us that it was for his own safety and to keep the peace in Jerusalem. In fact, Claudius Lysia wrote in his letter, there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. So Luke is showing here once again that Paul is not a criminal, he's not a troublemaker, he is an innocent man. And by implication, Christianity is not a rebellious or troublemaking religion. So after all that drama and adventure, Paul arrives in Caesarea at the end of chapter 23. And uh, yeah, as I said, Caesarea is the administrative capital of the province of Judea. It had government offices and embassies. It's kind of like Canberra, without the roundabouts perhaps. That was the idea about it all. And Felix there was the governor, the top Roman official in the area. And he's in the same role that Pontius Pilate was during the ministry of Jesus. So a lot of power. And he's a really interesting character. There are likable things about him, like he holds a trial, 
and he gives Paul some freedom and they have a conversation. Uh, but on the other hand, he refuses Paul's justice and he wants a bribe. We know other things about Felix from historians at that time, such as Josephus and Philo. Uh, apparently, Felix was known for corruption and he was known for brutal suppression of any kind of rebellion, killed a lot of people. So it's a tough place for Paul to be. But Paul, in his favour, is a Roman citizen, and so he's entitled to a trial. And so the trial began. Now, this is the third speech out of five in Acts 22 to 26, and it's worth being a bit oriented here. I always find it a bit tricky to keep my hand, head around what's going on. But this is the third speech out of five. Speech one was Paul speaking to the people in Jerusalem outside the barracks. Speech two is where he speaks to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, in chapter 23. Speech three is where we are now, Paul in Caesarea, the capital, on trial before Governor Felix. Speech four is coming up before Festus. And then speech five, he speaks before Agrippa and his sister Bernice. So each speech is a bit different according to the context and the audience but each speech is contributing to our certainty of the Gospel. But let's stick to chapter 24, and this is first, Paul's first trial before Romans. Now, the Jews had brought a lawyer with them for this one, so it tells you they're serious. Uh, his name is Tertullus, and Tertullus begins with some flattery about what a great governor Felix is and all the peace and reforms he's brought. Uh, it's a very positive, flattering kind of start. But what he's really saying, reading between the lines, is that Felix has brought about peace, but how? How has he done that? Well, by executing troublemakers. Just subtly reminding him of that. That's what has worked in the past, executing troublemakers. And so, if he wants to keep the peace and keep his boss happy, he should execute this troublemaker they're about to talk about. It's actually very cunning. And then the accusations come. Paul is a troublemaker who's stirring up riots. This is the same language that was used about Barabbas, who was sentenced to death, and Jesus, who was sentenced to death. It's a charge of leading rebellion against Rome. Tertullus also said that he was the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And the Nazarene sect is a way of talking about Christianity that emphasises its origins in Galilee, where the town of Nazareth was. And Galilee was famous as the home base of several rebels against Rome. And then he's also charged with trying to desecrate the temple. Now, he adds this because temple desecration was a capital offence under Roman rule. So, overall, it is a charge of about disturbing the peace, making trouble, threatening the good order of the empire, threatening the good order of the world. Now, in a sense, Christianity faces the same charges today. Christianity disturbs the peace. Christianity makes trouble. Christianity threatens the good order of the world. I think we experience this sometimes in a small scale in our families. Christianity seems to be making trouble in the family. Why are you missing this family event? Why are you not baptizing your kids according to our culture and tradition? Why are you not making sacrifices to our ancestors? All these kind of things. The message is what you are doing is making trouble for the family. Your Christianity is making trouble. Or in the workplace or classrooms, people might say, look, everyone agrees about this except you. Why are you stubbornly refusing to go along? Well, we all bend the rules in this way. Why are you not going along with everyone else? Your Christianity is making trouble. 
And of course, we experience this in the media and social media. People say that Christians are slowing the changes our world wants to make, legalizing euthanasia or promoting abortion or promoting gender fluidity. Christianity is getting in the way of all these wonderful improvements the world wants to make. Christianity makes trouble. So the accusations that were made against Paul are still being made at all levels against Christians today. And so now we really want to see what Paul says. How does he reply? How does he answer the charges? And then what could we learn from all this? Well, firstly, before we look at his defence, the content, let's look at the way he responds. Let's just note his attitude to the situation. And I think we see Paul show two things here. He shows respect and courage. So, firstly, respect, he is polite. He is, uh, calls Felix a judge, he gladly makes his defence, he doesn't dispute his authority, he respects the system. But even so, he shows courage. Even though he knows the Jews are asking for the death penalty, he is brave and confident and bold. His attitude reminds us of chapter 21, verse 13, when he says to his friends, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is a model for us as well. In our testing situations, we will show respect to our friends and families. We will respect the work authorities or the school or uni authorities, but we'll show courage and boldness and a willingness to suffer. I find this example of Paul really helpful. I'm not naturally a brave person, I'm a, I'm a conflict avoider, I love to keep the peace, but this passage encourages me to be brave the next time I'm on trial for the Gospel. So respect and courage, that's his attitude. But secondly then, let's look at the content in this speech. And I think in this speech we see, first of all, Paul denies the charges. Paul denies the charges. Verse 12 and 13, for example, look, look there, verse 12 and 13. He says, My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere, anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. See, Paul's saying there was no disputing or arguing. Uh, elsewhere, he, said, he, he was ceremonially clean. These charges are untrue. He makes it very clear the charges are false. He is not a troublemaker. Now, this is reassuring for Theophilus, the original reader, and for us as well. Like, Paul is not a troublemaker, and Christianity is not a troublemaking religion. But also, this passage encourages us to take the same path and deny false accusations. It is totally right for us to deny the charges against us and argue for our innocence. Christians do not need to be pushovers. So if your family accuses you of not caring for the family or loving the family, you can dispute that. You can say, no, I do care for this family, I do respect my parents. Or if people accuse you of hate or cruelty or oppression, you can deny that as well. I found myself in this position recently, accused of something because of Christianity, I can't really go into it here, but this passage encouraged me not to accept those false accusations, but to deny them and defend myself. So I would encourage you to defend yourself with respect and with courage the next time you find yourself on trial for being a Christian. Thirdly, 
The third thing we can see in the speech is that Paul moves from his defence and proclaims the gospel. We see this in verse 14 to 16. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Here he is, boldly proclaiming the gospel. He's saying, look, I'm not a troublemaker, but I do believe the Bible. I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I do believe there'll be a final resurrection and judgment. I do believe in a moral universe. Paul takes this opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And let's pause for a moment to reflect what a great gospel it is. We have God's will made known to us in the Bible. Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, He died for our sins and rose from the dead. He is now alive in heaven with God and will come again to judge. We have the hope of eternal life. Paul knows this and he's certain of it. I hope this is a gospel that you also believe in as well. I hope this gospel fills you with hope and joy. And so, just like Paul, when we are in trial situations, we also will take the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We'll move from the back foot to the front foot. We will say, no, no, those, those things aren't true, but let me tell you what is true and why I live like I do. Now, what might that look like in practice? What would it look like for you? Remember, Paul's had a lot of experience by this point, so we're starting from further back. But at the very least, it means speaking about Jesus. Let me give you a, a small example. Um, I often have conversations that go something like, uh, what did you do before being a pastor? I said, I was a doctor. Why did you give up medicine? Now, there's a curiosity there. It's often you know, a low-stress situation. But sometimes there's just a little hint of an accusation. The accusation being that Christianity takes people away from meaningful work and makes them poor. And so, <laughs> I'm addressing that. And so, when I answer, I try to, I, I don't spend too much on the defense, but I try to somehow speak about Jesus. I say something like, look, I really enjoyed medicine, but as a Christian, I thought it was really important for people to know about Jesus from the Bible. So, I moved to a job where I could do that with most of my time. Can you see how I'm just trying to bring up the name of Jesus there, trying to work towards the gospel? And if I'm extra brave, I could take, take things from there, you know, like I could say, do you have a faith yourself? So a question for all of us is, how can you move from defence to gospel proclamation the next time you are, in any sense, on trial for Jesus? And what would a conversation like that actually look like? Maybe by doing this, you could be part of someone's story. I would love for us at our tables to discuss that after church today. So, proclaiming the gospel. So, coming back to Felix then, what happens with the trial? How is it going to go? Well, three things happen. Unfortunately, there is an injustice for Paul. In verse 22, the trial is adjourned. Felix promises to make a decision when the commander comes, but nothing comes of that. So, Paul stays in Caesarea in jail for two years. Felix is there waiting for a bribe, 
Um, that doesn't come, and then at the end of his time there, he does the Jews a favour and leaves Paul in, uh, in jail. So, there is injustice for Paul. And that might well be the case for us as well in our situations. There may or may not be justice in our situations. And secondly then, Paul receives comfort from his friends. Now, I think this is quite important. Just look in verse 23. It says there, Felix ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Now, Paul did have friends in uh, Caesarea. It was the home of Philip the Evangelist and his family, and it was the home of Cornelius, the first Roman Christian, along with his household. It may or may not have still been there. But Paul had friends in Caesarea. And I think this shows us that Christian friendship is so important if we are to cope with trials in the world. It's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough to know Christian theology and apologetics. Watching experts on YouTube is not enough. We need Christian friends. Christian friends comfort us, encourage us, and help us feel normal in our environments. During one trial for me recently, I reached out to a friend on our staff team. I was feeling attacked, I was feeling weak. I knew I needed a friend. I just needed to talk and share my fears, get his advice, get his prayer. And that conversation and prayer was so helpful, I needed that more than anything. So I want to stress this for you guys. All of you here, we all need to be in regular contact with our Christian friends. Sunday alone is not enough. Now for adults, this means at least being part of a growth group and getting along each week. You need that encouragement and other people need you. For the primary age kids and youth at our church, that means being part of Rush or Friday Youth or, or Midweek, if at all possible. That's where these friendships happen. Now, these ministries of Rush and, and Youth and Midweek, they're not guarantees that our kids will, will sail through life and every trial will work out and everything will be fine. No guarantees like that. But these ministries are just so valuable for Christian friendship and encouragement and enduring through trials. They help Christian kids feel normal. Now, I need to share something on this. It's a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable. Now, the youth and kids team tell me that we have less than half of the youth and kids of our church going to Friday Youth and Rush. Less than half. Now, I don't know the life circumstances of everybody. I know there's family, there's work, school, travel distance and so on. Everyone is different. I haven't seen a list of names or anything like that, but less than half, that seems low to me. The youth and kids in our church are going to get challenged over Christianity even more than the adults here. It is not going to get easier. They need Christian friends who will encourage them. They need each other. Christian schools often have a part to play here. Christian schools are great. We have great Christian schools in our area. But I don't think they replace these church ministries. And even if they did, the kids who go to school where they're the only Christian in their school need the encouragement of other Christian friends. So if it is all possible, I would love for you to speak as a family about how your primary age kids and youth age kids can get to these things as soon as possible. 
and to the teenage guys and girls here, you're taking more responsibility for your lives now. I would love for you to make the decision, your own decision, to go to youth and, and midweek, if at all possible, to get that Christian friendship happening. You need it. You need these things to help you and each other prepare for the trials that are coming. Well, let's come back to the trial and the fallout after the trial. We've seen the injustice, we've seen the friendship benefits for Paul. But the third thing we see after the trial is that Paul continues to encourage Felix, or evangelise Felix. Now, this is fascinating. It says in verse 24 that after the trial, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, spoke regularly with Paul. Now, Drusilla was the younger sister of Agrippa. She's probably about 19 years old here, um, uh, on her second marriage. Uh, Maybe she's open-minded to the gospel. But it seems like Felix and Drusilla were fascinated by the trial and were keen to talk more. And this is often the way. When we defend ourselves in public situations and proclaim the gospel, we never know who is listening. You never know what will happen after the big moment is over. Sometimes what happens after the big public moment is a deep and meaningful private conversation. Someone from the edges joins the story. And that's what's happening here. And it's so interesting to read about what Paul talked about in verses 24 to 25. He spoke about faith in Christ... This, of course, is essential. We put our trust in Jesus to be saved, not good works. Then he spoke about three things according to verse 25. You see what they are? What are the three things? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. What an interesting selection. What do we make of that? I think these have a vibe of past, present, and future. So the past, he spoke about righteousness. That is, we are righteous by faith because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all our sin and guilt, and imputed to us all of His righteousness. This is justification, something at the start of every Christian's walk with God. And then present, he spoke about self-control. I think here we have a one-word summary of Christian ethics, of how we are to live as justified sinners in the present moment. Self-control comes up a lot in the New Testament, in lists of Christian virtues or qualifications for overseers and so on, so it works well here. It means keeping our desires in check. It means making decisions based on what is right and good, rather than our feelings. And it's really quite countercultural, both then and now. So Felix, as a Roman aristocrat, would have been right into self-indulgence. That would have been it for him, uh, having everything he wanted, self-indulgence. Our current world teaches self-expression. Everything that's in here needs to come out, self-expression. But the Bible teaches self-control. Not self-indulgence, not self-expression, self-control. So as we talk about Christianity with whoever will hear us, this will make up part of what we talk about. Christian ethics, marriage and singleness, sexual morality, not getting drunk, Honesty in finance, controlling our anger. Christians value self-control. And then Paul spoke about, what was the third thing? The judgment to come. That's the future. That is, Jesus will return. There will be a universal judgment according to God's standards. Uh, Perhaps according to some of those standards of of self-control. There will be a universal judgment. And there will be two outcomes of judgment. Eternal life with God 
or condemnation in hell. Now, hell is sometimes seen as an obstacle in evangelism because we worry that it makes God seem unreasonable. But Paul had no problems with it. He saw it as necessary for Felix and Drusilla to know about. So, this needs to be part of our evangelism as well. I think one of the great things about the Life series that our church runs is that in the week three, DJ talks about sin and judgment. He doesn't try and hide it. People need to know. So there we have Paul's discussion, his conversations with three summary words, righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. And it's so interesting, isn't it? The, the judge in chapter 24, who's Felix, turns out to be the one facing judgment. The whole scene turns on its head. The judge finds himself judged. So is Paul's evangelism effective? Well, sadly, not in Felix's case. We don't know about Drusilla, who knows? But Felix was afraid, and he was afraid of hell, I think, but not so that he repented of sin and turned to Jesus. Ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can open the minds of people who are closed to the gospel. Even the great Paul couldn't evangelize someone into the faith over that two-year period. But ultimately, Paul never gave up. We'll see him through the rest of Acts continue to evangelize and spread the gospel. If not through Felix, then through many others. All right, so what have we seen here? Well, today we've seen that Paul, and by implication, Christianity was on trial. And indeed, Christianity is always on trial. We'll always face questions, accusations, and attacks in the courtroom, but also in the classroom and the living room. This passage encourages us to be respectful and bold. It encourages us to defend ourselves against unfair attacks. And it encourages us to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the great news of our living Lord Jesus. Trials give us the opportunity to be part of someone's story in coming to know Jesus. So, are you ready for this? I would love for you to share with each other after the talk, when was the last time you fell on trial for the gospel? How did that go? And what could we do differently next time? Jesus is in control of our world and He will make sure the gospel goes out. Being on trial gives us great opportunities for that. And with the encouragement and support of our Christian friends, let's pray that happens. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you chose Paul to be a messenger to the world about your life, death and resurrection. He proclaimed righteousness by faith, self-control in this world and the reality of future judgment. Thank you that the gospel spread through him. Thank you for the confidence this passage gives us that following you is not troublemaking and rebellious. Please help us to be ready to face whatever trials come our way. By your Holy Spirit, give us respect and courage. Help us defend the charges against us. Help us to take these opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Please, please give, keep giving us the encouragement of our friends and please use us to encourage others. May it be that we might be part of someone's story and that people might come to faith through our endurance and testimony 
when we find ourselves on trial for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.